We've just been discussing the godly heritage of America. Once again, let me just say that this isn't limited to America. This is really not an American thing we're talking about. We're talking about the influence of God on government and the interaction between men. And this nation was founded with a godly heritage that we are fastly moving away from, and it's because primarily uh, we don't know. I know that in my own case, I am just humiliated, basically, at how little I honestly understood about all of this. And uh, so we've been discussing the the godly background. We've Mm -hmm. debunked separation of church and state. We've shown that the founding fathers were overtly religious, Christian They never intended for us to be a secular or a humanistic type of thing. And so we've established that, and you've given a lot of examples of it. Uh, This begs the question for me is how have things changed? Because right now, as it stands, I would say that the vast majority of viewers in the U.S., as well as around the world, view government as something that should be totally void of any influence Mm -hmm. of religion, and there ought to be uh, no expression of religion in any kind of a public format. How did this all change? Let let me go back to the way we used to view Christians and church in general. And I think this will be challenging for a lot of people because we don't think this way about them anymore. But if you go back even to the American Revolution, time of the American Revolution, um, it's interesting that the British blamed the American Revolution on the Black Regiment. And the black regiment were the black robes of the preachers. They said if it hadn't been for those preachers, America would still be happy British colony today. Hmm. And so they blamed the preachers for it, which is why that they went through, as, as they went, for example, through uh, New York City. Nineteen churches in New York City, they burned ten of them to the ground. Now the British did this. The British did that. They burned churches all over Virginia. When they caught a, a, an American preacher and put him in a... Now see, in, in the American Revolution, America lost 10,000 more soldiers to prisoner of war camps than they did to bullets. So you're safer on the battlefield being shot at than you are a prisoner of war. But the highest attrition rate was of preachers who were put in prisoner of war camps because they're the guys who caused all this and they're the guy who got the worst treatment. So what you find is that not only had, and this is because they had been preaching for it. Uh, Clinton Roster, who is a former historian at Cornell University, really award-winning guy. They have an endowed chair of history at Cornell now, Clinton Roster chair. He wrote a famous, famous book, award-winning book called Sea Time of the Republic. He said, you know, these, these ideas that America came up with that other nations weren't using, where they come from? And he didn't look at the sources like the Bible. He said, who are the people who articulated that? And he goes back and he identifies six intellectual thinkers that he said shaped America. Well, four of the six were preachers of the gospel. And out of those four of the six, one of them is a great example is John Wise. The Reverend John Wise lived in Massachusetts in the 1680s through the early 1700s. But you'll find that by 1687, John Wise had already preached a sermon where that John Wise said that all men are created equal and they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. By 1687... So was that barred by Jefferson? Well, actually, I'll tell you that in just a second. Excuse me. No, but you're right on. (laughs) I mean, you're seeing where it's going. 1687, he had also preached a sermon where that he said, when you look at taxation in the Bible, it is clear that taxation without representation is tyranny. So there's a sermon on that. 1687, he had preached a sermon looking at the different forms of government in the Bible, monarchies, republics, democracies, etc. He said, it is clear that God's preferred form of government is the consent of the governed. Now those phrases, as you recognize, consent of the governed, taxation without representation is tyranny, 
and all men are created equal and doubt the equal right. Those clauses appear in the Declaration mm -hmm. of Independence. Mm -hmm. What happened was in 1772, the Founding Fathers took his sermons and reprinted them in a book. I have the actual book, 1772. And it spread all over America like wildfire again. And they went through multiple reprints of it. And they were helping people think right biblically about government. So here's John Wise, who did all this stuff in the 1680s, who is, again, reintroduced to a new generation of Americans in, in, the, in the 1770s. And then four years later, lo and behold, all those phrases end up in the Declaration wow. of Independence. So literally, Alice Baldwin, who's a she, was, she was a former historian at, at Duke University, she probably read more sermons than any other person in American history. Um, we have a collection of thousands of early sermons, but she read all of them. I haven't read them all. I've just got them collected. Mm. She said that there, there's 27 clauses in the Declaration of Independence. She said that there is not a right asserted in the Declaration of Independence that had not been preached from the American pulpit prior to 1763, which means by the time we get to 1776, what the Declaration is, it's a listing of the sermons we've been hearing in church for the last several years. So you have the preachers playing that role. The British saw it. B British knew it. It's interesting that when revolution breaks out, we didn't start it. We were attacked. British sent 55,000 troops after us, 28,000 sailors after us. We had the right to defend ourselves. So often, the leader of the military forces was simply the pastor of the church taking the church out to defend the rights. That's what Lexington was, the Battle of Lexington. Yeah. Reverend Jonas Clark led the congregation out, 150 men. I saw one of your DVDs where it, you would know the guy's name, but he was preaching and he had his clerical robes on. Muhlenberg. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, everything, there's a time and a season, mm -hmm. a time for war, a time for peace. And he says the time for war has come, took his clothes off and he had on his uniform and a sword underneath it. and That's enlisted, right. what, 300 of his 300 men from that church. That was in Woodstock, Virginia. 300 men from that church, they went and enlisted, and they became the 8th Virginia Brigade. And it's amazing how many brigades in the Revolution were nothing more than pastors leading their congregation. So this out. clearly shows that um, the founding of this nation and the documents that governed it and all of these kind of things came from the gospel. That's right. And so, it, and that was the mindset. And, and I, I've got to jump on something for a minute because today we hear, you know, Christians shouldn't be involved in this stuff. And what I hear, the, the verse that people throw at me most often is Matthew 22, 21, where it says, you render to Caesar what Caesar's and to God what's God's. And they say, look, you're not supposed to be involved in both. I know a, a guy here in America who has a massive uh, radio audience. And for the last several elections, before the election, he gets on and he says, all right, Christians, you got a choice this election. You can either obey God and go evangelize the world and share the gospel, the Great Commission, or you can disobey Christ and go vote in this election. Go, he discourages voting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because you have to render to Caesar or you have to render to God. The problem is they use the wrong conjunction. Jesus did not say render to Caesar what's Caesar's or to God's what's God's. He says render to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. He said, I want you involved in both arenas. I want you to render to Caesar and I want you to render to God. And he had the conjunction and in there. We've turned it into an or. Oh, I can't be involved in politics and be a Christian. No, no, that's exactly opposite of what Jesus... And to use that verse is, is simply crazy. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at Hebrews 11, which is our faith hall of fame, all the great heroes of our faith, Everybody from verse 22, 24 through verse 32 was involved in civil government. Mm -hmm. Now, why would he hold them up to us as examples for us if he thought it was a bad deal? Why does he tell us to pray, first of all, for those that are leaders in the government? 
There's nothing else in the Bible we're told to pray for, first of all. If that's on the top of his yeah. prayer list, that says something about what he thinks. So we've got this mentality. And with those sermons, and this is what I have a lot of fun with, and this really challenged me. I went back and started looking at those sermons. I found, for example, in 1708, they had two comets pass over America. And that's what the sermons were about, was what the Bible said about comets. Now, I've never looked at the Bible for comets. Mm. 1805, they opened the bridge over the Connecticut River, and they said, what does the Bible say about architecture and bridges? And they had a sermon on architecture and bridges. 1806, they had a sermon you, on a... How did they justify that? I'm at a loss. Well, you know, it was really interesting because as you get into the Bible... Architecture and bridges. Architecture. The Bible has so much to say about architecture and building structures, and so they were looking at the bridge as a form of architecture, and architecture was a gifting and calling of God, and they went through all the architects in the mm-hmm. Bible and the structures they built. Solomon's um, Temple. They, Solomon's they Temple. gave people, speci- uh, and uh, Moses' Tabernacle, people were called that God they endowed were gifted. with certain gifts. And you even mm-hmm. have, as you get over in Deuteronomy, you have building codes. I was a builder for years. I built homes. Yeah, and I didn't realize. Battlement around them. That's right. You've got to put a battlement around because if something, and somebody falls off, you're liable. Now we're into torts. You know, the seven torts that are in the law. So now we've got trial uh-huh. lawyers going on this thing. You know, I've read that stuff and I don't make those connections. Again, I'm a product of the, I guess, the secular human uh, Well, And, and that's what's happened in the church, is the church, even though we read the scriptures, we don't make the applications we used to. Um, it's like that, that 1806 sermon on our solar eclipse. I thought, what? Well, I read the sermon, and it's got all these references out of the little bitty book of Amos. I didn't realize Amos had so much to say. And it wasn't just solar eclipses, it was lunar eclipses and all these other eclipses. And that struck me. And then during the Great Awakening, our Great Revival, I was looking at the topics of the sermons in the Great Awakening, and they were just simply taking the newspaper and whatever was in the news. They said, here's how the Word of God applies to that. And in 1755, they had a huge earthquake in New England, which New England didn't have earthquakes. What I was struck with was the next Sunday, all the pulpits were preaching about what the Bible says about earthquakes. Now, if you were to do that today... Uh, which I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but if you were to do that today, I can guarantee you the fear of a lot of people is that if I start making comments on public policy, yeah. preaching against uh, the president or the Congress or the judiciary or whatever, mm-hmm. that they're going to come and jank, uh, jerk my tax exemption right. and that you're going to suffer and that you can't do things like and that. And see, here's where we go back into like the separation church and state thing. I show, I do a lot of pastors' conferences, and I show pastors and Christians and churches, I show them all these sermons out of the founding era. For example, one by Tunis Wartman, and it says, A Voice of Warning to Christians on the Ensuing Election of a President of the United States. And in that one, he said, All right, we've got two parties here, and they had two parties back then, different names, two candidates for president. They said, Here's what this, candidate, this party says. Here's what this candidate, this party says. Here's what the Bible says. You know what? Based on the Bible, there's no way a Christian can vote for this candidate in this party. Mm. And that's going in the pulpit. And, and I show all these sermons like that and say, now, how come we did this in America for 350 years? It changed in 1954. Without, without any debate at all in Congress, they added a rider to an appropriation bill that said, by the way, we've decided that if you're 501c3, we need to edit your speeches before you deliver them anymore. We, we don't want you talking about political stuff anymore. And then the IRS reinterpreted that in regulations in the late 60s said, well, we think that applies to churches. So it's only been since the late 60s that we've been told we can't do this. Now, the interesting thing about uh, the, the tax-exempt status is churches are tax-exempt without the IRS recognizing that, and the IRS knows that. If you lose your letter, uh, now, different is the ministry. You and I have ministries. We're not churches. If a church loses its tax-exempt letter, it's still tax-exempt. 
we've only had one church in the last 40 years lose its tax-exempt letter, and they were tax-exempt the next morning when they got up. I mean, hmm. the, the letter goes away. They don't. Now, if you and I lose our letter, we lose our tax exemption. That's a whole different thing. We're organizations. But as churches, churches are inherently tax exempt. That is the nature of them constitutionally. They don't have to have a letter to be that way. So what happens is, and, and I, I have a lot of fun with this, this is, you know, we're in this thing that, well, we can't talk about political things because if we do, we'll lose our tax exemption. I said, for 350 years in America, we used to talk about this stuff. And for 5,000 years before that, we talked about it. I said, but just consider. Remember, Elijah, God's minister in the, in the Scriptures, was just about to come down on Ahab and Jezebel. He was just about to jump their wicked policies. He said, you have, your wickedness, we haven't had rain three and a half years. Your policies on private property have been terrible. Look what you did to Naboth. You know, go through. Bless his heart, Elijah was just about to jump them and confront them with their wickedness on public policy when fortunately he remembered his 501c3 tax exemption and kept his mouth shut. <laughs> and Nathan and Gad were just about to confront David and say, David, thou art the man. Confront a civil leader over adultery and over murder. And fortunately they remembered their 501c3 tax Now, Amos tells us that, that God's shepherds are supposed to be the plumb bob. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to be the level of righteousness. And so we spoke into every area where righteousness was needed. What's happened today is... Marriage, abortion, public religious expression, education, all these biblical issues, the government has said, oh, no, no, those are our issues. You stay out of it. No, those are biblical issues right. before they ever became government sure. issues. And so what we've done is we've allowed the state to take over a bunch of issues that belong to the church, and we've gone along with that. And, and so that's, I mean, you're right. If we preach those sermons now, people will go through the roof, and it's because it's like separation of church and state. Do it. That's right. And that's, that's the point. If it's in the Bible, we ought to be talking about it. And so uh, we were talking yesterday about some of the legal groups. Back in September, a little incident happened in America called the Pulpit Initiative, where then on the basis of history and law and Bible, um, priests screened, and there were 31 preachers who stood in their pulpit and said, folks, we're having an election. And here are the issues the candidates are talking about in the election. Here's what the Bible says about those issues. Based on what the Bible says about those issues, you cannot go this way. You have to go this way. And they called the IRS ahead of time and said, we want you to be here to hear these sermons. We're going to endorse candidates. We want, and they didn't just endorse candidates because of party. They said, here's what the Bible says about the issues. And they called the IRS in because they want to sue. Nobody has ever sued that policy of the IRS mm. ever in mm. 40 years. And the Alliance Defense Fund is behind it, and they're absolutely convinced they can get this policy thrown out on its head because it is unconstitutional on the basis of free speech, on the basis of free exercise of religion, on the basis of the right of the people to assemble, the, the right of assembly, choose who you're... We've got all these rights, but we've given them up without fighting for them. And so I think there may be a change coming in the next three or four years because we really think we can win this case. The his history's there. The precedent's there. It's all there. We've got all these old sermons, et cetera. I mean, even up through Eisenhower, we still were preaching sermons in the pulpit on candidates. If they of course, were one, of the, one of the drawbacks today is that the news media is so anti-Christian and mm -hmm. anti-church that say if you do win these initiatives and stuff, it's not going to be publicized. It's going to be right. up to the Christians to promote it. And the mainstream media will put some spin on it. And so it's hard to get the truth out. We've lost the education. Mm -hmm. We've lost the government. We've lost the, uh, the news media. Well, see, here's part of what happened. Because the way we've gotten to where we are today is we've actually permitted things to happen. Um, if you look back in the previous generations when we felt like Christians should be involved and the Bible applied to everything to life, and there's five, there's five institutions in a society that shape that society. 
those institutions are business. Business has a huge impact on society. Education has a huge impact. Government has a huge impact. Uh, media, entertainment has a huge impact. And the pulpit has a huge impact. Well, we used to believe that God would use all five of those areas. So we had Christians in every one of them. But you know, even after World War II, the Denver Post newspaper, if you missed church on Sunday, on Monday they would reprint the sermons out of the churches on Monday so you could read the sermons on Monday. Mm. That's World War II in the media. Now, we're on the other side. Now, how'd that happen? It uh, must be because... like we're in a different We're time in a completely work. different time zone. That's amazing. And, and it really goes because we started something in the church in the 1920s. We started saying, kids, if you want to do something good for God, be a pastor, be a missionary, but stay out of those secular areas. You don't want to get in science or law or government or politics. You pull Christian people out of any arena, you pull Christian values out of that arena. Mm-hmm. Well, we've given up four and a half of those five structures. We've said, you know, business, that's corrupt. You can't love God and, and mammon. You said, stay out of there. And, you know, government, separation of church and state, don't get into government and law. And, you know, education, that, that's really a secular field. Stay out of science and stuff. You know, we, we don't... So we've pulled Christians out of four and a half arenas now. now we wonder you're why it's so hostile. Tracing this back to the 1920s, is there some significant thing that did that, or what? What caused? Yeah, this? There, there were actually two things that happened, and, and the church had a failure in both occasions. When Darwin came out with his Origin of Species in 1859, uh, again that was not a new doctrine, but it was the first time it had been assembled like that. Darwin took 2,300 years of evolutionary teachers and put them in one book. And so the church, for the next 20 years, struggled. Well, science says we evolved. The Bible says we're created. What are we going to do with this? Science is contradicting. And so in the, about 1879, you had a massive split of the Christian church where that one group said, well, we don't know what the Bible says about science or government or law, but we do know that it says we need to win people to Christ. We're going to evangelize the world. They became known as the evangelicals. We'll win the world, but we don't care about the rest. The other group said, no, the Bible is fundamental to all aspects of life. It it deals with everything. And they were the fundamentalists. And so we split the church at that time. Half the church says, we're not going to get involved in these science issues and government issues and education issues. So now you've pulled about half the church out of being salt and light. Then we get into the 1910s and 20s where the three big battles came up. Uh, One was the repeal of Prohibition. When Prohibition got repealed in America, that was seen as a direct slap against Christians in the church. Uh, Two, you had the Scopes Monkey trial. Although we won the evolution trial, we apparently lost the media war, and so Christians looked really stupid and anti-science. And then number three, you had the Great Depression. And in the Great Depression, you had had uh, Herbert Hoover run for president, and he ran on the backs of evangelists like Billy Sunday and others who out-campaigned with him. And they said, you Christians brought on the Depression. You got involved. You got a Christian president. The, the economy's gone bad. You've caused people to jump out of windows in Wall Street. You Christians are murdering people. Oh, wow. And, and so, what, what, I mean, it didn't matter if Mickey Mouse would have been president <laughs> then. You know, the, the, the economic policies of the past 30 years, just kind of like where we are now, uh, had done it. And so what, what you had was the church got beat up in three areas in the 20s. And they said... We need to get out of these areas. We're just we're so when you come up against something that's controversial and something that that's puts right. you in a bad light and that it's hard to deal with, and you run, from you it. just avoid it. And you, you avoid you it. withdraw and say, "All right, we'll just concentrate." And we on gave the over those issues. arenas. We gave education over to Dewey and all the secular guys, and we gave the law schools over to Christopher Columbus, Langdell, and Oliver Wendell Holmes, and all the secular guys. And we gave the media over all the secular guys, and we gave half the pulpit over to the secular guys because we said, "Well, we're not going to talk about these things out of the Bible anymore." 
So out of five institutions, we gave four and a half of them. Well, now I will say this. I've gone back. I've read uh, Washington's biography and some other things, and the media, the news was as vicious it or was. more vicious it in was. those days than it is now. So I don't it think was. that that's changed a lot. It has not changed, and it's interesting that in America, back in the 1770s, we came up with what were called committees of correspondence, and it would be like Internet today. And the reason was is that we have such a British-biased media. They won't tell the true American news. And so Washington and the guys developed an Internet system, if you will. It was horseback riders that would carry, they would write papers, and they would spread it to every community because the British newspapers would not report it in America. And so that's where we are today, telephone trees and Internet and viral marketing and email blast. We can do this stuff and pass it all around and get by the media, and I think we are. And I think that's why we see declining viewership on all the major media mm -hmm. networks and a rise in all the, the Internet media networks. It's good in a lot of ways because we can bypass the, the major right. news media. But on another hand, there is now the, the uh, population is so fragmented. You can just get into your own blogs. Yeah. You can become so insulated so specialized that in you totally mm -hmm. divorce yourself from anything. And it's hard to reach those people. And that's where we used to be so good with the Bible because we showed the Bible wasn't just a spiritual book. It was an economic book. It was a moral book. It was a book with medical science. Health care is laid out in the Bible. I mean, we went through education in the Bible. We went through transportation. We went through military. And, and Christians had such a renaissance view. They understood something about every area because the Bible deals with every area. And, and now we've gotten into making the Bible such a small, narrow book. It deals with your eternal salvation and maybe a little bit about your character. But it no longer deals with the real aspects of life. And so we've compartmentalized our faith, and we've got to get back out of that. So you're saying... Basically, that the church was the uh, first one to drop the ball and quit applying the word to our daily life. There's no question that America does not exist as a nation were it not for the church. Uh, a lot, and the other thing that we've we've allowed ourselves to happen with Christianity is we've allowed Christianity to be defined primarily as a theological belief system. And the founding fathers were very adamant that yes, it is a theological belief system, but it is also a societal living system. That's why someone like e. Ben Franklin or Thomas Jefferson, who might not be a personal Christian, were huge advocates of Christianity and biblical teachings because of what they did in a culture. I mean, quite frankly, if you take something as simple as the Ten Commandments, from a societal standpoint, you know, I really don't care if my neighbor is an atheist. Now, from, as a Christian, I do. But sure. from a societal standpoint, I don't care if he's an atheist. But you know what? If he'll obey the Ten Commandments, if he won't kill me and steal from me and take my wife, he makes a great neighbor. Mm -hmm. And that was the benefit of, the, of those teachings. If you take those biblical teachings, if you ignore anything in the future, any kind of heaven or hell or anything, and just say, live by these teachings, they will change the course of a, of a country. So it's out of biblical Christianity that we have what's called republicanism, that, that people elect their own leaders at local, county, state, and federal levels. It's out of Christianity that we have the rights of conscience protected. Under Christianity, we believe in free market religions. We don't chase other religions off. We say, hey, come on. We're like Elijah on top of prophets of Mount Baal, on top of Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal. Take all the time you want, but I just get my time. And when I get my time, we'll see who the real God is. We weren't scared of them. Joshua said, choose who you're going to serve. I'm going to choose the Lord, but choose. So we were not coercive. We were non coercive. We were uh, very much rights of conscience. Uh, we very much protected so many societal aspects. And that all came from Christianity. And, and now we're being told, and I mentioned last week that I've been involved in seven case, several cases of the U.S. Supreme Court, including Ten Commandments cases. And the reason we've had trouble displaying Ten Commandments is that the court, particularly Justice Stevens, says, well, the Ten Commandments represent a great theological dispute. 
Well, no, they don't. I mean, they are behavioral. That's why they hang in courtrooms and not church houses. They don't hang in churches because they're not theological. They hang in courthouses because they're behavioral. And so Christians have allowed themselves to be defined into what you believe is theological. Therefore, keep it yourself. Keep it in the four walls of the church. No, what I believe affects the quality of education. What I believe affects the quality of a neighborhood, the, the life that goes on around me. If I will live by the Good Samaritan, if I will live by the Golden Rule, other teachings of Jesus Christ will elevate a society. And, and that's part of what's happened is the church has stopped preaching in a lot of areas that are out there. And we've really gotten into a really small area. And we preach salvation. We preach heaven and hell. But we don't preach the aspect of, of living. And 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says not only do we have an inspired scripture, but it says that it may prepare the man of God for every good mm-hmm. work. Well, so, let, me, let me be the devil's advocate here for just a second. So you hear people say, but you can't legislate morality. What makes your yeah. morals superior to somebody else's morals? There's several, several answers to that. Uh, and, and by the way, I hear a lot of Christians tell me, well, you can't legislate morality. And my response is, well, you better tell God that because he, he did it right off the bat. I mean, the Ten Commandments are a legislation of morality. But, you know, I could even, I could even argue that point separate from, from the Bible because mm-hmm. you have to have some standard. I mean, the people who That's sit here and say you can't legislate morality, well, then why do we draw the line at being a pedophile See, or bestiality? I mean, somewhere exactly. you, you say something is right and something is wrong, and it needs to be a fixed position instead of something that's constantly moving. That's right. And Founding Father um, John Witherspoon said, consider morality as conformity to a law. So we say it's um, 55 is a speed limit. What we're saying is it's moral to drive 55 or below. It's immoral to drive 55 or above. Mm-hmm. Uh, we say no double parking. What we're saying is it's immoral to double park. It's, and, and so morality is conformity to law in general. To say you cannot legislate morality means you should have no laws at all, well, yeah, which puts you in the anarchy. Yeah, and you know, there's people today with the uh, Islam religion, they're trying to bring the Sharia, Sharia law in, Ooh. and there's a man who actually, uh, a, an owner of a television station, that beheaded his wife yep. and claimed uh, that law. That's right. And so, are they saying that we can't legislate that that's wrong? That See, here's the better free? question. The better question is not, can you legislate morality, but whose morality are you going to legislate? I think that that's it. Because you will legislate somebody's that's morality, right. whether it's Sharia law, whether it's secular law, whether it's whatever. You will legislate somebody's. So why not legislate from a proven morality that has shown itself to... Uh, it's really interesting. There is a book that came out in 1752 called The Spirit of the Laws by Charles Montesquieu. And Charles Montesquieu took a thousand years of world history. He looked at every major world religion, and he says, this is the societal product of that religion. He says, where you have Islam, you have despotism, you have monarchy, you have uh, theocratic governments, the, the people have no rights. He said, where you have Catholicism, he says, you tend to have monarchs because you have a single ruler overall. He said... Where you have Protestant Biblical Reformation Christianity, the people rule, and the people are in control. So you have, he said, Republicanism goes with, with Protestantism. He said, with Catholicism goes monarchy. And he said, with, uh, is, is, he said, with Islam or with Muslim, 
goes tyranny and, and despotism and theocracy. Now, there's people just all around the world being upset, but this is a historical That's fact. That's historical fact. And, and, but they don't want to face fact. They See, have a paradigm that they're going right. to believe regardless of what facts are. And, and so that if you're going to say, why should we legislate morality, let, let me give a, just an example. Uh, we, in the last presidential administration, really made a big push for faith-based programs. We used to have those in America all the time. But they have, when the court came out with the separation church and state nonsense that it did, which really meant secularization church and state, it's like, oh, no more faith-based programs. So the previous president made a big issue out of doing something with it. Now, what, what we can do is we can statistically show the difference. For example, every state in the United States, all 50 states, have state prison systems. In addition to that, we have federal prison systems. Uh, I've been on the consultant pool of the U.S. Justice Department for a number of years can tell you that in the prisons in America, whether run by a state or run by the federal government, the recidivism rate is 68%, which means when we let somebody mm-hmm. go within two years, 68% will commit a crime that puts them back in prison. We now have 14 or 15 states that have faith-based prisons. Okay, in those states with a faith-based prison, the recidivism rate is 8%. Yeah as opposed to 68%. That's heard, 85% better. I heard Chuck Colson making that exact point exactly. on Mike Huckabee's program that's one right. night recently. And, and, and see, the point of that is, is, all right, if I can reduce prison return by 85%, I need 85% fewer police officers, 85% fewer courts, 85% fewer prisons, 85% fewer prison guards. That's going to drop my taxes on justice areas 85%. Hey, if I'm an atheist, I want faith-based programs because they produce something better. That's Christian morality. So I'm going to, let me change it. It's not Christian morality. It's biblical morality. It's Judeo-Christian morality. The biblical morality given in the scripture makes that on something else. You take something like drugs. The government drug rehab programs, the average cure rate is less than 20%. Faith-based drug rehab programs, Teen Challenge, over 70%. Now, that's a massive difference. 25% of all crimes committed in this nation are committed by people attached to drugs who are committing crimes to get money to feed their drug habit. So if we drop that by 60%, we've now dropped crime another yeah. significant. Let me, let me, I got this quote from you, and you can expound on it, but Benjamin Rush said, if we cease to teach Bible in schools, we will expend much time and money in punishing crime instead of preventing it. Yeah. Now that... I was trying to write quick. I may not have got it exactly no, word it, for that, word. No, that's it. Benjamin Rush was a founding father who signed the Declaration. He was considered one of the three most notable founding fathers. John Adams said, you got George Washington, you got Ben Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. We don't have a clue who the guy is today. Benjamin Rush, just to credential him a little bit, signed the Declaration, but he also started the first abolition society in America. It's really started the, the modern civil rights movement. He also, as a white guy, started the first black denomination in America, the Amy denomination. He also is called the father of American medicine. Uh, He found medical cures we still use today. He is the father of psychiatry. The American Psychiatric Association has his picture on the logo of their letterhead. Uh, He was a ratifier of the Constitution. He was the director of the U.S. Mint under three different presidents. He's a financial expert. How do you remember all this stuff, Dave? Because... I, I'm so Your heart is guys. really into I, I, it. I love it, it. Be- because I, I see that and That's say, amazing. why can't we be like that? You know, why is it that we're content with mediocrity? Why, why are we content to be so much less than what we could be? And, and I, I'll just give you an example. Um, John Quincy Adams, founding father, president of the United States. First vice president. You take his diaries and read his diaries. Now, now first, first off. Excuse me, that was John Adams. Was John Adams, first, first vice president. Adams. 
This little book here was done by President John Quincy Adams. This little book shows 10-year-old Americans how to read through the Bible from cover to cover once a year. Now, when's the last time we've had an American president show 10? I mean, we want adults to read through the Bible from mm-hmm. cover to cover. Once. We're, we're teaching our 10-year-olds to do that, and a president is doing that? What's cool about him is he would sit down on Sundays, and he, he, read, he, he says in here, I read four to five chapters of the Bible every morning, first thing. But on Sundays, he really got into more of it. And I have records of him on Sunday where that he would, one Sunday he was really, really ticked in his, in his diaries because the preacher only preached 45 minutes. And he thought that's a waste of time. He said, I want a two-hour <laughs> sermon. I don't want these 45. He, he said, well, he'd have loved me. Oh, well, see, <laughs> he wanted content and they, they wanted content. But he would go home on Sunday afternoons and he would start reading the Bible. And when you read his diary, he kept a diary for 68 years. He started a diary when he was 11 years old. He kept it until he died at the age of 79. And there was 24 years where he never missed a day's entry in his diary. And instead of just saying, got up at 8.30, went to bed at 9, he would have 8, 10, 12, 14 pages of what went on, what he was thinking, who he met with, what they said. And so on Sunday afternoons, you'll be reading him. And he says, well, I was reading in Romans 8 today. And it looks like the French translation out of the Greek is much better than the German translation, although Russian is not that bad. But the Italian, he reads the Bible in seven languages. No, and he's self-taught. Now, why, why don't we do that? We can. We, no, I don't. Well, we're too busy watching MTV or whatever. We're, we're watching all sorts of other stuff, and we don't focus the way that they focus. And that's why John, that's why Benjamin Rush is, is such a cool guy. But that educational quote you read, he's called the father of public schools under the Constitution. The guy started five universities, and three of them are still going today. So he is a huge educator. But when he was called the father of public schools for writing he did in 1790 as the founding father saying, all right, now we have the Constitution, so let's look at our school system. In 1791, he did a second major educational piece, National Schools. And in it, he's, in the first one, by the way, he said the only reason, you'll love this, he said the only reason we need public schools is because there may be some American children among us who don't know the Bible. He said, "An America can't survive if it doesn't know the Bible. That's why we have public schools." And to today, make sure if you do know the Bible and go to public school, you get it drilled out. I get out. So that was his first paper in 1790. In 1791, his second paper was the use of the Bible in schools. He gave a dozen reasons we would never take the Bible out of schools, and in really kind of a prophetic moment, because he was looking. He's so wise. He's looking ahead. He said. I wonder if a future generation of Americans might take the Bible out of schools. Nah, they're too... Well, they might. And in looking at that, that's where he he said that. He said, in contemplating the political institutions of the United States, he said, if we were ever to remove the Bible from schools, I lament that we would be wasting so much time and so much money and punishing crime and taking so little pains to prevent crime. And that's what and our that is prophetic. That's exactly that's where we are. We took it out, and we had a 694% increase in violent crime when we took the Bible out of schools June the 25th of 1963. It's gone up 694%. Now, are you talking about when they uh, kicked the prayer out? Is that when that prayer was? was taken out in 1962 in Ingle versus Vital, and within 12 months later in 63, in two cases, Abbott and Shemp and Murray Curlett, the court said, oh, by the way, while we're at it, not, not only no prayer, but no Bible either. So in 63, we, we took the Bible out. And by the way, this, this book right here contains the very first public school law passed in America. It's from 1647. 
and that public school law passed in 1647, and, and the name of this book is called the Code of 1650. So this was done, the 1650 compilation of the laws, and that was passed in 1647. Uh, but in, in the law that they have in 1647, the law is actually called the Old Deluder Satan Law. Oh, yeah. Now, why would you call a public school law the because they explain in the law, they said it's, it's the chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from a knowledge of the Scriptures, as he has in former days. And they said, in America, we're not going to let the old deluder keep us out of the Scriptures. We're starting public schools. So this required that when you got 50 people into a community, you had to build a public school. When you got 100 people in a community, you had to hire a teacher for the public school. And the whole purpose of public school is to make sure our kids know the Bible so that we don't get off into the civil atrocities they had in Europe with the Inquisition and Crusades and et cetera. I mean, that, that's education. In well, again, we're coming back to the question. If this is the root and it was so dominant, then how did we get away? We got away from it because we allowed ourselves to be put in a tiny little box. Uh, when we start, I, I guess the, 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 here's the analogy. How can you have a generation of people that go through Egypt, see all the mighty hand of God, the mighty miracles of God, all the things he did to bring them out of Egypt, and 40 years later they've forgotten who God is? How can you do that in 40 years? That's and then good God, remind, God brings them back to himself, and 40 years later they've forgotten again. And then God brings them back. Well, I can even say is. that it was within two or three days of passing over the Red Sea exactly. that they were saying, you know, they to forgotten. God we had died in Egypt. If you do not make a point of returning to and diligently paying attention to the things that went before, you forget them and you move in a different direction. And so you're saying that the church is the first place that dropped the ball because mm -hmm. we withdrew from the public arena because uh, there were issues that were hard to reconcile, a well, lot of controversy, and the church just didn't We engage. got a lot of criticism. A lot of people started criticizing us, and we didn't like being criticized, and so we'll just get out so you guys don't criticize. My gosh, if you can drive Christians out by criticizing them, man, they'll never stop criticizing them. They can put us back in the closet somewhere, and we'll never come out to see light. I mean, you've got to be able to step up like Elijah did and say, come on, bring it on. You know? Well, if criticism would kill you, both of us would be dead. We'd be dead long ago. We were talking over lunch about some of the blogs and <laughs> the books right. and people that have you spent millions of dollars right. trying to discredit you. And, but if you let that intimidate you, then the influence you can have with the history, with the documents, you've pulled that out of society. And the enemy knows that. And, and so if they can get you backing up, you know, what? In Washington, D.C., we have the National War College. And the National War College is a significant place because people come there from across the world because America has been one of the most successful military nations in the history of the world. We win more wars when we get involved. When you look at the nine principles of war, defense is not one of the principles of war. Offense is. They say that defense is a temporary time where you reorganize to go back on offense. The church gets on defense. We get defensive and we get attacked. And rather than being on the offense and rather than saying, hey, we need to get involved in education. We need to get involved in law and government. But we need to be involved in Hollywood. We need to be making better movies. We need better newscasters on the nightly news. Hey, we need, be we need better everything. We say, you know, we've got to defend our faith here. And, and you, know, you can't do that. Since the secularization of the United States is when we have faltered in wars, such right. as the Korean, the Vietnam, Vietnam that's Afghanistan, right. That's right. all of these, because the moral fiber of the nation doesn't have the commitment. When, when you look at secular in. nations going to war, I mean, in, in World War II, when we did D-Day in World War II, President uh, Roosevelt led the nation in a six-and-a-half-minute prayer on national radio. Wow. And at the time we went to war, to D-Day, 
Eisenhower stood with the troops and prayed before he sent them out on D-Day. Now, we'd never do that today. That might offend somebody. Look at the difference between wars then against enemies in World War II and where we've been in, in, in recent times. And there is a distinct difference. Sure. And supernatural intervention of God. I mean, documented how Absolutely. He intervened. Things worked that couldn't have worked. Absolutely. Because we used to know that it wasn't in our own flesh that we trusted. You know, in Exodus 15, it's not the, the power of the horses or the strength of the chariot. It's in the Lord our God. And when we called Him to help us, He was happy to do it. But when we said, hey, you keep over there, separation, church, and state, we can fight our battles by ourselves. We go, hmm, not turning out quite the same. Yeah, you go to kicking God out of your national public life, and then all of a sudden we have had the biggest uh, uh, challenges and failures. I don't know if failure is the right word in, in wars and conflicts. And, and by the way, that's had. not a discredit to our soldiers because we've no. got a bunch of great guys out there. I fought in Vietnam, but you know what? I guarantee you that was... Uh, we weren't free. Yeah. Matter of fact, I could look and see the Ho Chi Minh Trail and see them driving trucks down the Ho Chi Minh Trail carrying weapons that they were going to fire at me, yeah. but we couldn't fire you at couldn't them. Fire they were out them. of bounds. That's right. That's right. And that's because of the moral or you the lack of common moral. sense. You lose your common yeah. sense. God really does give sense. He gives wisdom. And you stop asking God for help and you quit getting the wisdom. And it gets really illogical in a hurry. I'll tell you what, uh, if we could return to these moral roots and not only individually, but then start uh, expounding them in the public market and stuff, mm -hmm. we could see our nations turn around. Not only this nation. Any nation. But any nation. Any nation. Once the church steps out of the public arena, and withdraws, then that allowed the ungodliness to begin to start taking hold. It's the uh, parable that you have in, in Matthew where that they awakened one morning and they found all the tares sowed all over the field. And they said, had this happen? And Jesus said, when the good men went to sleep, the enemy came in and sowed the tares. And so he didn't fault the enemy for sowing the tares. What he'd said was they went to sleep. The good guys went to sleep. And that really is what's happened. And that's not something that cannot be redeemed because it certainly can. Uh, you look at many times through the Bible that Israel gets way down here and God brings them back up. I mean, Israel has a cycle of ups and downs across their, the book of Judges is a, is a series of 40-year cycles. They forget God, deny God. God rescues them. They're back up to worshiping God. They forget God. So it, it's an easy thing for God to turn a nation around. And there's specific ways he does it. As a matter of fact, historically speaking, you can tell uh, from the Bible and from history what God does on how he turns nations around. But what, what happened is the church got out. So the only way to get things back is the church has got to be renewed in its mind. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says you have to put off the old, you have to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and then you can put on the new. Well, the mind is the key, because if you can't get the mind fixed, you can't get the new stuff going right. So we bought into a bunch of old teachings and a bunch of old wineskins and a bunch of stuff that's just flat, not true, it's not accurate. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I, want to, I want to pick up something you just said a minute ago. We, we're told that America was founded by a bunch of secular guys, atheists, agnostics, deists, etc. Um, this happens to be a textbook that a lot of American kids get in universities called the Godless Constitution. And what we're teaching the next generation is America's great because it's always been secular. If it can just stay secular, it'll stay great. I bet you the founding fathers would have literally um, gotten furious um, over that. Uh, furious is probably an understatement. I mean, they... they that was against everything? This is reprehensible. It is. This would be reprehensible to them. And it's done by, by two professors that, that did this book. And their thesis is we have a godless constitution because the founders themselves were godless. Um, we talked in some earlier programs about original documents. 
people may never have seen a John Adams letter. So I want to pull out a John Adams letter because you used that quote from John mm-hmm. Adams that our Constitution made only for a moral and a religious people. Uh, this particular John Adams letter right here and is signed on the back. This is President now that's John the original? Adams. There you go. Wow. There you go. So how old is that? This is, uh, this is December 21st, 1809. So we're 200 years old. Wow. Uh, he's written this to his friend Benjamin Rush, who's a signer of the Declaration with him. And I, I just want to, w- what happened was Benjamin Rush had a dream about John Adams. And Benjamin Rush, a very evangelical founding father, he had a dream about John Adams. He wrote a letter in October of 1809 and said, John, I had this dream about you. You need to know what's in it. I think God gave me this dream. It's a very specific dream, and it really was very prophetic because in the dream he saw that Adams and Jefferson became best of friends again. They were enemies at this yeah, time. and they did. And he saw that they both died on the same day, which wow. they did. And, you know, it's an amazing dream. So John Adams, this is his response back to his friend Benjamin Rush. I just want to read a little bit of the rhetoric here. He's talking to Benjamin. He said, Benjamin, my friend, he said, there's something very serious in this business. He said, the Holy Ghost carries on the whole Christian system and his truth. Not a baptism, not a marriage, not a sacrament can be administered but by the Holy Ghost who's transmitted from age to age by the laying on of hands. He says, there is no authority, civil or religious, and there can be no legitimate government but what is administered by the Holy Ghost. There is no salvation without it. All without is rebellion and perdition, or in more orthodox words, damnation. And he just keeps going through. And this is supposed to be one of our godless I think founding that, fathers. Uh, he would be more than furious. Oh. Then. He would, <laughs> you know, what's those interesting, words show that he would have condemned it completely. We, we have textbooks like this, and we get taught like this. And so is that and, been taught in universities? Oh, yeah. It's been taught. I, I find I speak in universities all over America, and this is a regular used textbook. What's significant is that when you go to the back of the book, as you should any point at any point in time, and say, all right, what, what are the footnotes here? What are the sources? Because these academic guys, these academic guys are claiming, well, here's their footnote page right here, a note on sources right there. Footnote page. This is what they say. They say, we have dispensed with the usual scholarly apparatus of footnotes. Isn't that interesting? They're not <laughs> going to footnote it, anything. It would have gotten in they their can't. way. That's right. They cannot footnote it. So what they do is they just tell kids, trust us, believe us, we have PhDs, we know what we're talking about. These guys are all secular. Really? You know, how many, matter of fact, let me just pull out a, another one here. Uh, this is just a nice little John Hancock proclamation from 1793, governor of Massachusetts. And you'll find throughout here, he's got Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. He's got all this God language in here. What I'm intrigued with is the final prayer request. And by the way, notice it's a a proclamation for a day of public fasting, humiliation, and prayer. He had the entire state shut down. He had all businesses shut down. This is while he was governor. This is is a government proclamation. This is a government proclamation. It's printed by the state printer, the governor printer. The prayer request here in Massachusetts, John Hancock has on praying and fasting that if there's anyone in the state that does not know Christ, that they will come to know Christ in a personal manner. Now, that's a governor on a state proclamation calling for that, and yet, oh, no, we have a bunch of godless founding fathers. Today, the ACLU would sue them. Oh, absolutely. Do you know that, that by 1815, they had issued 1,400 government calls to prayer? 1,400 by 1815. 1,400 times they had called the nation, the state, whatever, to prayer. So... This goes back to the point of Ephesians 4 that you can't get rid of the old stuff without renewing your mind and putting on the new. So a part of it has to be that we've got to go back and rediscover who we are as a people. 
I mean, we, we can't just say, well, we need America to change, we need Britain to change, we need Australia to change, we need that. We can say nations need change. How do you do that? You got to go back and get your mind renewed that, hey, it is okay for us to be involved. And by the way, that's what made us the nation we were, and that's our history and our heritage. And if we don't go back and start with that, and in the church's case, go back, let's read the previous sermons we used to preach. Now, if church wants to get really challenged, they ought to read the sermons that were preached in the Great Awakening, because yeah. they would not be sermons we would ever preach out mm -hmm. of our pulpit today. But without the Great Awakening, which was a 40-year revival, without that 1730 to 1770 revival, we wouldn't, we, wouldn't have, have we wouldn't have the nation. So what were they preaching back then that allowed the, that God to move for 40 years in the nation that birthed a nation that 233 years later is still here? So we could say that this nation really is a product of revival. There's no question that's a product of revival. And yet but, now they're trying to get God totally out. Get God out. But see, I, and, and while Christians today pray for revival, uh, I guarantee you they don't have a clue what they're praying for. You know, I'd like to say this. I've thought this a couple of times while you're talking, but in my experience, the church has put huge amount of effort into mobilizing for prayer and praying for revival. And even though I believe that there's a place for that, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If we put half as much effort into educating people and preaching these truths that you're talking about, I think it would do much more good than prayer. Let, let me give prayer you an example. Prayer is not a substitute for the truth. It's not a substitute. And John Hancock, who did this proclamation, said, he, he said, I urge you not only that you pray, but that you act. And, and we've made prayer a substitute for doing nothing, and, and we can't. And prayer is important. We've got to yeah. pray. There's people that will sit there and pray for hours in their closet, but would never speak up to their neighbor who is mm -hmm. espousing that, you know, there's separation of church and state, and we can't legislate morality. They, they won't never confront. say anything, mm -hmm. but they'll sit there and pray for hours for God to touch them. That's right. That's useless. And if they're not willing to go out and be the vehicle to confront, and, and I love Romans 15, 14, because it says you're competent to confront in the Greek. It's New, new Atheist or Nuthetic Counseling. We don't like confrontation. Well, I think Jesus did just a little bit of that in His I ministry. So. I, I think that was kind of characteristic of what Paul did and what Peter did. And, what, and you have to confront not in a combative kind of a way, but you have to confront by standing for the truth. And when you stand for the truth, you're going to take some flack for it. But, but what I love and the concept about we've, we've gotten so narrowly defined, pietistic really is where we've gotten that if you look back at the Great Awakening... How did you explain that? I'm sorry, I don't understand pietistic. Pietistic is we're, we're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. Okay. And, and we, we literally are so God conscious that we're worthless to anybody around us. And that really is not being God conscious. Mm -hmm. If you're God conscious, Jesus ministered to those all around him. He changed the culture all around him. It's just, and so we get so religious oriented uh, that, that we're useless. So in that sense, Christianity has always been a practical faith. And when you look at what was going on in the first Great Awakening, there's no more visible figure in that Great Awakening than George Whitfield. Mm -hmm. And the problem we have with George Whitfield today is we think he's just a great revival preacher. He was, but we don't read his sermons. You find out that it was George Whitfield who birthed the American military, came up with the first military banner, preached the sermons to the military who were going out to fight, and said, if you guys don't get up and do something, you'll be a slave nation forever. And it was George Whitfield who was advocating military and the formation of the military. Matter of fact, he died in 1770. He's buried at a church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. He's down at the bottom of the church in a sepulcher kind of a thing, coffin that they have there. 
when the American military finally, six years later, or actually five years later, launched out into military action, when we'd been attacked by the British, launched out in action, they went to that church to hear a sermon preached there. And then they went downstairs, they lifted the top of the coffin off. There's Whitfield, now just bones. He's laying there, his arms crossed, Bible on his chest, but he has his clerical robe on. The soldiers went by and each cut off a little piece of his robe to take it with them as an inspiration to go into battle because he was the father of the military who's hmm. the whole reason they're going out to battle. Now, we didn't think about that as a preacher. No, I've never heard that. And, I read his biography. Uh, well, see, you, 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 we hear very that. little about it. And, and in 1765, when the Stamp Act was imposed on America, there was huge outcry against the Stamp Act as being a non-biblical tax. They, they didn't impose tax. They opposed a non-biblical tax. It was anti-biblical. And so sermons were preached by the Reverend Charles Chauncey and others about, look, here's what the Bible says about taxes, and this violates it. So America, the government sends two people to Great Britain to argue against the Stamp Act tax. One was Ben Franklin. The other was George Whitfield. Hmm. What's that preacher doing involved in economic issues with the government? See, I that's the mentality that. we had. That's what revival preachers did back then. They were involved in every aspect of the culture. They were leaders, and that's where the Christians are supposed to be. We're supposed to be leaders on economic policy. We ought to be leaders on military. We ought to be leaders in education. And that goes back to the way we think. We have to so, change our knowledge. So, again, this comes back to the church is not actively involved in the uh, affairs of government the way that they were. But with their withdrawal, what has happened to our education? How did, how did um, we lose this perspective? Why did they quit teaching this? We, we really have bought into something. We, we think that it's the duty of the state to educate our kids. And the Bible makes it very clear it's the duty of parents to educate their kids. Now, if parents want to place their kids in school or if they want to homeschool or however they want to, that's fine. But the parents will answer to God for the education their kids get. Mm -hmm. The Bible was so good on education that we used to teach all sorts of sermons on education because the Bible not only tells you what subjects to teach, it tells you the teaching methods to use in those subjects. And we used to use those teaching methods. And in about 1920, we said, you know, those are really boring teaching methods. Let's go something different. So Dewey comes in with a whole new system of education that's very secular. It's not biblical. doesn't use the same teaching methods. Suddenly, our knowledge started falling. But even at that, when you look at where we were in 1962, America was number one in the world in literacy in 1962. We had the highest literacy rate of any nation in the world. Now we're 68 in the world. Now, is that because the others have improved that much, mm -hmm. or have we slipped? We've slipped. We have slipped. If anybody can go on the Internet right now, and they ought to look and try to find the exit exam for 8th grade students in Oklahoma in 1906, 8th uh, grade students in California in 1910, 8th grade students in Nebraska in 1908. Just, just take the exit exam for an 8th grade student now. And it's doctoral-level work today in America. And that's what every eighth-grade student used to know in public schools in America. And this is why America's gotten away from standardized testing. We used to have tests where we could count all 50 states and say, oh, Texas ranks 47th or what. And I can say that because I'm from Texas, so I'll pick on my state. But now every state has their own standards, so we can't compare each other with it any, any, anymore. In Texas, what we now call an exemplary school, parents don't know it, but an exemplary school is a school where that. 33% of the school reads at grade level. Wait a minute. 33% reads at grade level, and that's an exemplary school? See, we've redefined our own ed educational standards. That's why America, when we get an international testing, 17 out of the last 19 years, America comes in dead last in the world in international testing with, in math and science. When we compete against anybody else, we have so gone down. Now, why would that be? Proverbs 1-7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
When you take the fear of the Lord out of education, your knowledge will go down. And that's what we've seen in America. And so you, you mentioned Dewey. Is that when all of this started? Or how come Dewey even had the, the uh, platform to be able to make such sweeping reforms? Dewey got in because back in the 18, uh, late 1870s, we really got in the situation of saying, you know, the church shouldn't be involved in all these cultural issues. Let's just save souls, and that's all we need to do. And so the church had a split right down the so middle. So in the vacuum. In the of vacuum. The church. With a, see, now, if you take education, uh, by about 1882, I think it was, there were 370 universities in America. 90% were affiliated with some denomination. You go back to the Civil War. 91% of all university presidents were ordained ministers of the gospel. I mean, education in America, what made it great was that the church was involved in education. It was preachers that were presidents of universities. It was preachers that were the, the teachers in science, the teachers in math, the teachers in history, the teachers in government. But we don't do that anymore. Well, I've got it written down here somewhere. You'd know this better than I do. But you, you, you had a statistic. Oh, here it is, where... 200 in 1862, 262 of the 288 yeah, universities right. were run by ministers as college presidents. 1890 survey, 90% of state universities had chap, uh, what was that, chapel services. 50% was compulsory chapel. 25%, and that's state universities. Yeah, state. And 25% required church attendance to even go to their university. That's right, as state universities. Again, it just shocks me. And oh. we have departed so much from that. Yeah. And there's no um, coincidence that all of our uh, preeminence as leading the world in literacy and all these other things have declined ever since we moved away from the We Bible. moved away from biblical standard education and we paid for it. The other thing that has really cost us is uh, when you look in Matthew 10:16, Jesus says, I want you to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And that word wise means to use the mind. And so what we used to believe was that you loved God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your body, but also with all your mind. And we got into a period in the 1920s where we said, intellectual stuff, that's not good. And you know, we, we need to get away from that. We, we just need faith. We don't. And so what happened was we moved away from the use of the mind, and we got into a period in American Christianity where that we were all for the Spirit, which is great, but it needs to be balanced with the that's mind. True. And where we are today is, and I do this all the time in churches, I say, how many of you think the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God? Everybody raise their hands. I said, give me five reasons you believe that. I have yet to have an adult give me one reason. I'll say, now how many of you believe in the virgin birth of Christ? Hands, give me five reasons. We know what we believe. We don't know why we believe what mm -hmm. we believe. We cannot use our mind to defend it. Right now, statistics show that in America, between 71 and 88% of Christian kids will deny the faith before they leave college because they can't defend their faith. We've not equipped them to think with the mind. And that's, that's the product of our educational system. That's the product of our church where we've gotten so anti-intellectual, and that's not the right word, because the use of the mind is of God. Sure. He, and he lamented, uh, I love the parable in Luke, where he lamented that the children of this world were wise and the children of light. And again, that was to use the mind. The children of this world use their mind better than the children of light. It shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't in America 300 years ago. That's why our great intellectual leaders were always the pastors. That's why they headed the universities. That's why they were the science teachers and the chemistry teachers and everything else. So we've got to recapture that part uh, of Christianity. So biblical thinking very is very logical, but you know what? It's just exactly flip-flopped again. The intellectuals will sit there and look at anybody mm -hmm. who believes the Bible as being an, an idiot because you aren't using your brain. You're just right. accepting things. 
and yet it's the opposite. Yeah, it should be. I mean, there are occasions where I can see Christians who don't use their brain that I well, think they're kind of, you and know, And I'm sure that they, uh, those people who make that argument cite examples mm-hmm. of people that have drunk Kool-Aid after Jim Jones and right. something like that to use as examples. But the Bible will make you smart. The Bible will make you smart. That's exactly, especially if you let it. But if we just hold it over here in a little box and say, oh, it's just a deal with my spiritual life. If you're going to hold it in that box and limit it, it's not going to make you smart. But yeah. if you let it challenge you, it'll make you smart in all sorts of ways. I think it's Psalms 119, 100 or 99. It's right there. And it says, I have more understanding That's than right. all, all of my, my teachers. teachers because your word is my meditation. That's right. And the Word of God will give you wisdom, and it'll teach you how to think. And it's not just spiritual wisdom. Uh, interesting thing done by a Jewish friend of mine who is not a Christian, but 94% of the world-changing inventions over the last 2,000 years have come from Christians. Now, well, you, Christians, you never hear that. You never hear that. Christians <laughs> represent only 33% of the world's population, but they give us 94% of the world's And inventions. as we begin to move God out of our culture and we get less and less Christians, well, then all of a sudden all of these terrible things are happening with mm-hmm. our education, our production, our economy, and on and on and on. And, and most people can't connect those dots, but there's yeah. a direct relationship. And if we think that the schools belong to government, then we think the government ought to fix the schools. But what if the schools were never supposed to belong to government? Yeah. Then you'll never fix them. I was way. in an argument right here in Denver with a group of Christian uh, people, pastors, and we were talking about different things. And, you know, should we have our kids in secular school or Christian school? And, and another guy spoke up and he says, the question is whether there should be public schools. Yeah, there you go. He says, it was started by the church. The church should have never advocated yeah. the control uh, of the school system to the government. It should have been maintained by the Christians. And you know what? Nobody could debate his That's argument. That's right. Yeah, we're now debating a false premise of how government should fix schools. And, yeah. the, and the actual premise is exactly what he yeah. said. Should government even be involved in, in schools? That's yeah. excellent. Well, I tell you, we've been sharing some powerful things. And David, I, I know that we've got a lot more to share on this. Uh, but I want to just state once again that this is not limited to only the U.S. We have more people watching this program outside of the U.S. What we're talking about is how that the Word of God should influence your heart and change you. But then that ought to be reproduced in the way you deal with other people and the way that you uh, take responsibility for the education of your children, the way you run your government and your local municipalities about abortion, homosexually. The Word of God ought to trump those things. And we are qualified to make a statement in our culture today. And I really believe that these truths that we've been sharing can not only help you, but they can also equip you so that you could be salt and light in the earth and that you can make a difference in your uh, culture. And so that's the reason that we're doing this. And David, I, I sure appreciate you being here. I, My I pleasure, couldn't man. have made these. My pleasure. I could have I could have made a scriptural statement and said this, but then people would look at me and say, well, that's your opinion. But here you are with all of these facts that just enable you to sit there and say, this isn't just my opinion. This is the way it's been for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. We're actually living in the anomaly right now. Yeah, we are. We are. This is not normal. A secular America is a brand new thing in, in American history. And it's not functioning near as well. It's not doing real well. It's not. Praise God. I pray that you are listening. I pray that you're also getting some other people to listen with you because we need to shout this as far as we possibly can. And that's, I thought about putting this only on our U.S. broadcast, but you know what? This needs to be heard word, worldwide. So I don't care if you're in India or Africa or Europe or wherever you are, you need to be taking these truths and applying it to your situation. 